Welcome to Clear and Present, the bi-weekly podcast of the Institute for Biodefense Research, where we bring subject matter experts to the fore to discuss their views and insights to current topics and issues at the interface of the biomedical sciences and technology, biosecurity, and biodefense. I'm Dr. James Giordano, and welcome to another episode of the Institute for Biodefense Research's Clear and Present. This week, we'll be speaking with Mr. Robert Williams, a senior consultant for CBRNE and kinetic and non-kinetic engagements with us at the Institute for Biodefense Research. And his work is exceedingly timely as it focuses on issues of low-yield tactical weaponry that falls within the CBRNE arsenal. And it's of particular interest this week as you may be aware, uh, Vladimir Putin's ongoing discourse has addressed United States policy with regard to preventive nuclear strikes. Uh, This is married to his earlier assertions that any threat to Russian serenity and Russian territory, inclusive of possibly any incursion by drones or military forces, such as those that have recently occurred in the Ukraine, may be viable for some form of preventative action to thereby mitigate any further incursion and or something retaliatory. Uh, Clearly this is rhetorical, but I think it also reflects a longstanding West baiting, if you will, by using language of excess signatory documents and doctrine in ways that would support or even justify Russian kinetic activity. I mean, the language itself speaks in a somewhat veiled, but nevertheless inflammatory and justificatory way. And I'm quoting here, this is from Mr. Putin. As for the idea that Russia wouldn't use such weapons first under any circumstances, then means we wouldn't be able to have second use either, because the possibility to do so in case of an attack on our territory would be very limited. In in essence, the issue here is a a warning that longstanding doctrine about first use of a nuclear weapon, although initially considered for those that would be in the intercontinental ballistic missile variety, doesn't necessarily obtain or therefore entail the same limitations when one would consider a lower yield nuke. That said, let's talk with Mr. Williams about his views. A a recent piece of his appeared in National Defense Magazine that I had the pleasure and honor of of co-authoring with him, but it really speaks to his area of expertise and his ongoing interest and experience in the field. Bob, some thoughts. Well, thank you for having me. The the news this week uh, is really just an escalation again and a repeat in a lot of ways of what we've been hearing since um, the early part of the year. Um, President Biden uh, last month said we're at the the closest to using uh, nuclear warfare than we have been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that really should be a wake-up call uh, to everyone who focuses on strategic issues. In those remarks, uh, President Biden also referred to Armageddon. And I think that's really where uh, my focus uh, disconnects with some of the hyperbole that we see uh, in media today. I mean, certainly political statements are about getting that kind of attention, and uh, Mr. Biden is well to do so. But the Council on Foreign Relations also released um, their view of nuclear use in Ukraine, and it contained three scenarios. Uh, one was uh, a battlefield weapon actually aimed at a military target. Um, another was a signaling device, maybe something that was um, a, a nuclear test, again, uh, just to demonstrate uh, the power that they possess. Um, the third scenario 
again, where I, I see the disconnect, they describe the weapon of terror. Russia's most escalatory option is also the least likely. Uh, they quote, using a non, uh, using a non-strategic or a strategic nuclear weapon against Ukrainian targets. That language is uh, imbued with several uh, nuances. When we hear a nuclear weapon of any kind, um, I, I think the last few decades, certainly the, the only use of nuclear weapons uh, in World War II, and just pop science. Right? We watch movies where nuclear weapons have been used. It all calibrates our mindset to Armageddon, to this nuclear winter that will occur anytime a nuclear weapon is used. And I think the weapon of terror can still exist well below a strategic nuclear use. So I'll give an example. If Russia were to use uh, a tactical nuclear weapon, uh, a phrase that is often used to refer to something in the hundreds of tons or, or tens of tons even um, nuclear weapon, rather than megaton uh, quantities that we're, we're really conditioned to understand and expect from nuclear use. But if it was a 0 0.03 kiloton, right? Very, um, very much in the non-strategic realm and below the threshold of most things um, that exist in, in most countries' arsenals. Uh, that Russia uh, is thought to possess would create an environment still of terror. Um, and I think that's really the psychological impact uh, that Russia would gain from any nuclear use. Uh, remember, they'd be violating 77 years of non-use of nuclear weapons of any size, any kind, in any environment. And that's, uh, that's a terrifying thought in itself uh, that would still propel and create the kinds of an uh, environment of the terrorized society uh, that the Council on Foreign Relations outlined as the least likely scenario. I would argue it's the most likely. It's at least the first step um, in order to prevent further escalation. I, uh, I happen to have an opportunity. So, so, so let, yeah. let, me, let me just jump in for a second. I mean, so, sure. I mean, as referential to existing treaties and, and conventions, I mean, the implication here is that this moves away from more strategic orientation, utilizing large scale nukes, but also confine it to what would be relatively considered the battlefield or the battlescape with regard to justifiable use against combatants, correct? It could be. And again, just within the weapon of terror, um, if there were no collateral effects whatsoever, and I, I'll define collateral effects here as no civilian casualties, right? Um, not even radiation poisoning, a, a very low yield nuclear weapon, which is certainly a, a, a name that I prefer more than non-strategic or tactical because we're referring just to the destructive output of the device. But a low yield nuclear weapon that was detonated uh, at airbursts, just to use the example as I did before, 0 0.03 kilotons, a very small low yield device at 600 feet air burst. There's all kinds of other um, variables that are in play, uh, but we can use the basic math that's presented in uh, a long-standing uh, series of books published by the US government um, since the 50s. Um, the Glassstone references on the effects of nuclear weapons. So anyone can publicly go look at that. Uh, and it provides the basic math to say that 0.03 kilotons at 600 feet air burst would have one, the destructive force of overpressure directly beneath the target about the size to a lethal radius of an athletic field, a soccer field. More importantly, maybe an airfield. 
or perhaps a Patriot battery system, right? Something that is a defensible military target where we're not destroying cities, entire communities aren't disappearing, uh, nuclear winter hasn't started, and there would be no fallout to do so uh, from such a low yield detonation at airburst. Uh, the fallout is really a misnomer that we, again, have been conditioned to understand and to expect from any nuclear use uh, based on popular science, but it's not, it's not the scientific reality. And my concern, my great concern, um, is not to say that that's uh, a, a prudent use of a nuclear weapon or that any state should be violating uh, the legacy of non-use, but that the Russian calculus may consider that uh, and that they could do so and still be morally justified uh, in their propaganda messaging, right? They've, they've initiated this entire act of aggression uh, by supporting their, their moral stance uh, against ridiculous claims of Nazism, in Ukraine, uh, of Ukrainians building dirty bombs or trying to resurrect the nuclear program themselves. Uh, those are bogus, but the Russian propaganda machine continues to feed those to the world. A use of a low-yield weapon in which no civilian casualties occurred and only perhaps a defensible military target was destroyed from the overpressure effects. There's no radioactive cloud that begins to float over Western Europe and Germany as there was um, from the Chernobyl accident. If none of those features occur, and then there's no certain response from the international community, certainly from the United States to escalate with the use of a much larger nuclear weapon in our arsenal, then they get by with impunity for violating 77 years of non-use. And that entire standard of, uh, of, of non-use goes out the window. Right. So, so let me let me interject here because you, you made a couple of very very important points that I think are are both salient and sentinel to the trajectory of the discussion. Uh, first is the the power yielded both by propaganda and by the potential effects of these types of weapons. And what we're talking about here is the destructive power and effect of the weapon itself, as well as the disruptive effect. And here we're talking about disruptive not only in a socio-political and military sense currently, but disrupting the quote status quo so as to reestablish what might be a basis for going forward. The other issue is, well, then what, what represents justifiable proportionality as regards retaliation? And here, I think one of the, the points that you've made that I'm hearing is that the, the scope and scale of these types of low yield weapons is not necessarily incommensurate with what's out there in the more conventional arsenal. Correct. Right. I mean, if you think about uh, the U.S. has used the mother of all bombs, right? The Moab, uh, the GBU-43. Um, we used it in Afghanistan. Um, it's it was used in Iraq. Uh, predecessors to a very very large conventional device um, that is on the scale of around um, you know twenty tons of a. a a nuclear explosion, same as the Davy Crockett, one of the original uh, very low-yield nuclear weapons that the U.S. developed in the 1950s. Um, we've used that, and it has tremendous destructive power. Uh, and we had precursors to the Moab, the, the daisy cutter um, that was used in Vietnam to clear uh, large sections of a jungle in order to create landing zones. So if we set a precedent that it's okay to have that kind of destructive power, 
uh, in combat, and it's but it's okay because it came from a conventional source. Russia then saying, "Well, we did the exact same destructive power. We didn't we didn't kill uh, civilians, and none of those uh, sort of Cold War anxiety uh, things about nuclear warfare happened." then we're justified in using this. was completely a defensible military target, particularly if it's at the point where we've checked the box on uh, Russia having exhausted most of its uh, conventional capabilities uh, with the amount of drones, the Shahid drones that are coming in from the Iranians um, and cruise missiles that have been depleted by the, uh, the Russian stock. If a, just this week, a Patriot system was discussed as being potentially deployed to Ukraine. If that's set up, and the Patriot system is, is now on the ground and it's intercepting greater and greater quantities of cruise missiles coming in from Russia and the Ukrainian air defenses are shooting down the Shahid drones. Eliminating that Patriot battery would certainly be a defensible military target. Um, I don't think anyone would question that, uh, but it would push the Russians to the point where we can't attack it with the cruise missiles because it's being intercepted. Our conventional capabilities are depleted to do so. We don't have the troops on the ground that can penetrate that deep uh, to attack the battery. What are we left with? Well, we could use, they would say non-strategic or tactical, I would say low yield uh, nuclear weapon. It would have commensurate effects with a very large conventional bomb. The difference in both of those, you say, well, why not just use a larger conventional bomb to go after it? Uh, it's it's a defended point. It, it's the Patriot battery would be intercepting the kinds of missiles that we would expect to go after it. Um, so if the Patriot battery is being that successful, then you're really limited in what you can do uh, and being able to get that altitude of air burst to still create the overpressure effects and eliminate the battery on the ground would be a very desirable option. But it's so, a very so let me ask you another question. I mean, so if, if in fact what we see the Patriot missile batteries being effective against incoming missile type or drone ordnance, right. clearly perhaps a suggested approach in terms of dealing with them might then be more of a conventional airstrike. But if we're thinking about something along the lines of a Moab, this is going to require a rather sluggish vehicle. Uh, the exactly. airplane itself would then be highly targetable, particularly in light of the nature of Patriot batteries, correct? Yeah, yeah. when it takes uh, a, a slightly modified C-130, and for those listeners who haven't had the pleasure of riding in one of those, it's an albatross in the sky, um, four uh, propeller props, right? Um, not a swift bomber jet. We're not talking the new Raider that just rolled out uh, of the production line. This is a very slow moving, heavy lift aircraft. Uh, because the weight of getting that kind of explosive power from a conventional uh, payload is just it's just simply more weight. You can compact that design using uh, a nuclear material to achieve the same equivalent TNT tonnage right of yield uh, and put that on the tip of, of something much smaller. So even if it was to be delivered by uh, you know a fighter jet, which is more difficult, maneuverable to, to be shot down, um, and the Russians would be successful in doing that, they could deliver a nuclear payload with the destructive force necessary uh, and get that on target. Um, but again, there's still, I want to go back to the weapon of terror. Even if that occurs against a defensible military target uh, and there are no, or even few civilian casualties, right? Um, which the Russians don't seem to care about anyway. 
but if they were to really tweak the propaganda war in a way where they can say we were morally justified in doing this because the United States has continued to provide more advanced weapons, um, even if they're weapons of defense to Ukraine. Uh, we're justified in, in the strike that we used, the means that we did so, because it was proportional to the effects on the ground, even if it had been a conventional strike. And that sets a brand new threshold uh, where the reign of terror of using these kinds of weapons uh, begins to unfold. And again, that goes back to how we're conditioned to, I think, globally uh, conditioned to expect certain effects from any nuclear use. And we we don't know how the public would react, certainly how the Ukrainian citizenry would react to such a nuclear use, even when it didn't have civilian uh, casualty effects. And it puts the United States at a really, a really risky crossroad of risk escalation in how we respond. I had the opportunity to um, create a survey uh, for some research that was done in partnership with National Intelligence University. And the responses that survey went to uh, or was given to government personnel, military personnel who involved been involved in targeting communities. And the responses were very much consistent with the inability to respond to a nuclear strike. Um, but I took that question one more and went to an artificial intelligence. Um, everyone's playing with chat uh, GPT these days, right? Open AI's uh, new tool on the internet, which has generated a lot of uh, discussion. And I asked it the same questions that I had asked of military and government personnel in that survey. And one of those was, in a war between Russia and Ukraine, how would the United States respond to Moscow using a low-yield nuclear weapon against a military uh, airfield in which no civilians were killed? So again, creating the exact same scenario that we've just been discussing. And I think it's, I think it's remarkable that the AI, having harvested all of its knowledge from the whole of the internet, it sort of sets the median perceptions of human response, um, but only up until 2021. So we get to the point where the AI, in this case, ChatGBT, understands uh, Russia's initial invasion of Crimea in 2014, but it hasn't quite yet seen what has happened during 2022. And the response was was very consistent with those of the military uh, and government personnel. It was, uh, quote, just to read a couple sentences, difficult to say how the United States would respond, but um, including the specific details and potential political climate at the time, the use of any nuclear weapons uh, would not permit the United States to respond in kind. If Russia were using a low-yield weapon, against a, a military airfield, it is likely the United States would respond with a combination of diplomatic and economic measures, which is exactly where we have been during 2022. Um, and it's not uh, escalate to de-escalate, according to um, some interpretations of the Russia propaganda. It would be the United States limited in the responses that we could have. Um, de-escalating the situation and preventing further violence uh, would be the number one goal for the United States. That said, in the three minutes we have left, the trajectory looking forward, I mean, realistically, how do you see this unfolding? I mean, I'm asking you to sort of go one step beyond the chatbot, if you will, yeah. and just sort of look at your own crystal ball 
and and do two things if you could for our listening audience. Number one, your particular speculation in terms of the reality of, of how this could play out. And then also what you might think should be done. Well, I want to say I, I hope I'm correct that we won't actually get to nuclear use of any kind. Um, even the low yield scenario that I've described, um, the levers in place, the, the, the pressure on Russia not to escalate to that point, um, they're, they're obviously great. But there's hard to see uh, an out of the conflict if Russia does escalate to that point. And we've already seen Russia pushed into the corner diplomatically, uh, becoming a social pariah of the international community. Uh, if, if the violation of uh, non-use were to occur, again, in any yield, um, it would be hard to see the way in which Russia comes back into the international community after that, or how we see an end state in Ukraine. Um, so I think for those reasons, really realist points of view, uh, Russia is very unlikely to cross that threshold. Um, and if they do, um, it's going to be in that low yielded range. Uh, I don't think there's any, the, all of the discussions about strategic nuclear weapon use, uh, Russia being backed into the corners with the classic theory that it becomes a weapon of last resort. I, I don't think it's likely to go down the road because we're not seeing a direct threat to Moscow. We're not seeing a direct threat to the Kremlin and Russian integrity. Um, but but if it were to escalate to any point, I think the conditions that we should be concerned about are not to make references to Armageddon, not to make references to full-scale nuclear uh, combat or nuclear winter, which are, are many of the uh, directions that media and even well-respected uh, institutions like the article from the Council on Foreign Relations made. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's helpful. If we're going to consider anything about what the future of this conflict looks like, it should be to prepare for even if it's the least likely course of action, prepare for non-strategic, tactical, low-yield nuclear use, whichever term you prefer, uh, in which it's against the defense of military target, and how we get around responding to that and also defending against it. If we were to spend the resources now thinking about that small, low collateral effect scenario, rather than worrying about a larger nuclear war, uh, we might come up with some solutions that can actually reliably pressure Russia not to use that that form of action. Outstanding. Robert Williams, thank you so much for spending your time with us this afternoon as these situations continue to unfold in the Ukraine and hopefully not elsewhere, but perhaps what they bode for global relations, for example, in the other domain, what's happening in the Pacific as relates to China and Taiwan. Certainly, we'll bring you back. Um, as a leading figure in this discourse and also sort of riding on the tip of that spear. So thanks again so much for being here and thanks for your ongoing work. Really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Special thanks to our guests this week and to you, our listening audience. Subscribe to your favorite podcast channel to join us next time for another episode of clear and present.